What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Mike Rabel, the co-founder and CEO of the Premier Lacrosse League. The PLL was founded by Mike and his brother, Paul Rabel, back in 2018, and they've raised millions of dollars from the world's best investors to attempt to build the next major professional sports league in America. Mike walks me through how difficult it was to launch the business, the challenges they face today, their road to profitability, and what he has learned as an entrepreneur and leader along the way. This was an awesome episode, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before, all thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro cover by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoros, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. Eight Sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnerships with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX gets it, and they want to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today and use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's literally that easy. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. 
You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm here with Mike Rabel today, who's the co-founder and CEO of the Premier Lacrosse League, the PLL. Mike, how you doing today, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course. I'm pumped for this episode. I want to start with the history of lacrosse. I think it's fascinating what you guys are building today, but I want to give people context on what exactly it is you guys are building. So if you could just give maybe, I don't know if it's 30 seconds or 60 seconds, but a little bit of the 30,000 foot view on just the history of pro lacrosse here in the United States. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most fundamental stories that we're working on having a conversation in the public with. Before telling the history of pro lacrosse, I think it's important to talk about the history of lacrosse. Lacrosse was created by the native people of Canada. It's the oldest indigenous sport in North America. We are one of the few sports that actually has some of their best players are Native American. It was created by the Haudenosaunee Nation and sort of it was a game that was created to give praise and celebrate their creator. And it actually wasn't fundamentally created to like win or loss, have wins or losses. It was created to find a way to celebrate the gifts from the creator. And so a lot of those roots and those stories, we're pulling into how we think about authentically talking about lacrosse. You know, like I said, two of our, our top players, one is from the Iroquois Nation, one's from the Seneca Nation, Lyle Thompson and, and Zed Williams, respectively, and helping amplify their messaging that they want to talk about and why lacrosse is important to them, why they started playing. So that's like part one. Part two is we developed the Premier Lacrosse League, the PLL on the back of really my brother and a bunch of other players in Major League Lacrosse that started in 2001 and sort of just the lack of progress that league was making. And I'm not saying that to denigrate the league. I think that the the people that started that league were pioneers. They laid the foundation for us. But I think that some of the tweaks in the strategy sort of dictated where that business ended up going. And that business started to become a, a little bit distressed and the players were unhappy. And so we saw an opportunity in the market to build our own league, where players receive equity, they get health care, we pay them five times what they were making. It's a tour-based model, it's single entity, it's digitally native, and then tweak some of the rules. So they're more, they're, they're more approachable and they are more fast-paced with how the consumer is consuming sports now. We launched in 2018, first season in 2019, we battled COVID through 2020, had our own bubble. 2021 was a, was a bubble as well. And now we're off to the races in our fourth season here in 2022. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think that one one point is important, right? I don't think it's right to, hey, say these guys failed at this. They were terrible entrepreneurs, et cetera. I think that there's just drastic differences when you look at the game of pro lacrosse between the two leagues, right? The, the rewards or the incentives for players to come to your league were obviously much greater than the other league. And ultimately, the execution that you guys were able to deliver on those deliverables ended up resulting in the two leagues merging last year, right? So talk to me a little bit about just what happens from here, right? What does that bring now that there's one unified league instead of two different leagues? Yeah, I mean, it was a point of unification, like you talked about, for the entire sport. And then most importantly, for the players, you know, they, the MLL still had some really great players. You know, we had uh, what we thought was the majority of, of the best players, but bringing them under one umbrella, having us all row in the same direction, whatever analogy you want to use, is just cohesive for the players and then ostensibly the fans and then the front office who's pushing the, the commercial interest of, of the business. To have that pure alignment just makes more business commercial sense. And then as also like the most important thing, it allows the players to feel that they're in a place where they're not having competing or conflicting interests, right? Like if Matt Rambo's best friend, Colin Heacock is playing the MLL, Matt Rambo's in the PLL, that doesn't feel great because both leagues are vying for the same commercial interests. To bring them under one roof, I think allows us to not only work with the players better, but it also allows for happiness, allows for us to focus on our goals. You know, I think competition makes you sharp, but in a winner-take-all business like sports, I think it's important to continue to push forward under one umbrella and then have a cohesive story in the marketplace, especially when you're talking to your fans or potential sponsors. How do you start a sports league, yeah. right? I think people look at it as this like big challenge, but ultimately, like, what is step one? Is it going to raise venture capital? What, what did you guys do? Yeah. People ask me this. I don't know that I would do it again, man. I had a head of hair like you before I started and now it's only on my face. I think that how do you start a sports league? It takes it takes a couple of things like insane and almost ignorance to push forward because there's so many obstacles. The first one is just like talent and making sure you have the best, especially when you're in a pro 
league, right? If you want to be in pro sports, you need the best talent and so you need the best players or else people aren't going to watch. And so that was like goal number one. It's like, how do we build a business model that's going to allow players to make more money? It gives them upside. It takes care of them. That's constantly progressing in the way that we think about our players because that's the product into the day. So that was one. And then two was like, what's the sustainable business model that allows us to build our company faster than a traditional sports business model? So traditional models are trade associations where there's a bunch of different owners or home and away models. And not to say that we won't move in that direction one day. The MLS is now there, you know, 22 years later as they started a single entity. But the fastest way that we thought we could grow is purely single entity, not for control, but so we can make decisions quickly and we can own all the IP and assets and then we can sell those through, right? We always say a CMO doesn't wake up saying, hey, I got to buy the PLL. Hopefully it's starting to change, but they wake up and say, hey, I got to buy the NFL or NBA. And we got to convince that CMO why they should spend with us because they can get assets with us. They can't get anywhere else in the marketplace. And we build a reputation of performing for them. So a business model that makes sense, right? And the third piece for building a sports league to your question is around capital, right? It's expensive, right? a league, and it's hard to stomach. And so you have to and, and do it the right way. And so we needed to raise a bunch of capital and we needed to make sure there were people that believed in the vision, the long-term vision of this league, that were passionate about sports. And in particular, if we could find them being passionate about lacrosse or at least tell the story of lacrosse and getting them around the table in the single entity structure was a great way to build a moat. And then once you build a league, it's it's pretty well protected and insular as long as you're doing the right things and working well with the players and, and have the right people around the table. Gotcha. That was a fantastic answer. So I didn't want to interrupt, but I have a few questions based off of some of the things you yeah. said, right? So let's start with a tour-based model. You guys obviously do this tour-based model instead of the, the city-by-city model that other sports leagues in the U.S. run. What are the pros and cons of that? Obviously, the pros I think you mentioned were that you guys are able to do all the licensing and the marketing and the sponsorship deals as one single entity. What are some of the negatives that, that people say about that? Yeah. It's, it's a great question. It's something we're actually wrestling with right now is, you know, with this tour based model, similar to like F1 or WWE or NASCAR, it allows us to get more scale, right? We started with six teams. We expanded to seven. We expanded to eight. We're eight teams. If we were a traditional home and away model, we'd only be in eight markets. But with our model, we can get to 14 to 15 markets in a year. So all of a sudden you almost get to like 2x the number of teams. And so you get more scale into more markets. So that's like a big piece of what we talk about. And the biggest thing for us is like capturing net new fans, getting more exposure. So the core-based model allows us to do that and to keep costs in a, in a reasonably controlled way. So that's one. I think two, to answer your question though, we need, to, we need to start thinking about the casual fan, right? Because the casual sports fan. And the casual sports fan was some of the data analysis we're doing right now. How much does that casual sports fan care about the team and the geography the team represents? versus the sport or the players. We know that there's a bunch of hardcore fans that care about the sport or care about the players and they're going to follow us. But how can we like build our business and grow our TAM by capturing that casual fan that may care about geography? So that's something we're doing a bunch of data analysis on right now and starting to think about, okay, what are different versions of our league and our teams that can maybe represent some geos, represent some cities, represent some regions, it doesn't totally disrupt our business model that's working right now to capture that that fan. And I think that's probably one of the biggest downsides of, of our model right now that we're trying to fix. Yeah, it's actually an interesting proposition because I think about this a lot. Everyone points to Formula One, right, that you mentioned before, and they say, hey, Drive to Survive was the best thing ever that happened to Formula One. And it was amazing. It provided a lot of tangible benefits, especially here in the United States as they started to expand. But if you think about the other things they did really well, it's everything that you guys are doing, right? It's a tour-based model. You're going city to city, but they make them events. It's three to four day weekends. There's concerts. There's all these giveaways or, or other things surrounding the actual race. So I think that's an important piece. And then they really made the drivers personalities, right? So it's similar to you guys where you don't have necessarily a team in each geographic area or city, but you have these personalities within the teams and similar to Formula One within their teams that people can attach themselves to, right? And all the data that I've seen it, at least indicates that that's where we're headed, which is that the younger casual sports fan cares much more about aligning themselves with an individual rather than a team, right? If you're, for example, Odell Beckham Jr., right? You're a fan of Odell Beckham Jr. because you like him. You're not a fan of the Browns. You're probably not a fan of the Rams anymore, right? These players move team to team and you follow the player because you're passionate about them. You're connected to them. So I think it's interesting because people like to associate themselves with a team in a certain city, right? I grew up a Giants fan because my dad was a Giants fan. 
I had no choice. He was from the area and he wanted to watch. So I watched and I, I grew up liking that. But ultimately, I think that we, we've transitioned to this world where the individual becomes much more important than necessarily the team. Totally. It's our thesis from the beginning is that Gen Zs and millennials are starting to care more about the individuals than they do maybe the city that the individuals play for. And you're seeing the NBA and the NFL start to follow suit, right? I think that there's still value to be unlocked there, right? Like, especially as you're trying to convert someone, if someone flips on ESPN and all of a sudden, you know, the PLL's on TV and they're not that familiar with lacrosse, it's like, how do I get their interest right away outside of like sports betting or they like the colors or maybe they heard of a player or their friend's a hardcore fan? It's like, okay, how do I give them something else to attach themselves to? So it's really a case study in like human psychology, but like the trends are, are totally moving in that direction and have been. And that's why we created the business in this way we did is that, you know, it's a player driven lead league. You're starting to see the creator economy be like a big space where it's driving tons of value back to the, to the actual creator. You're seeing NIL be a space where the student athletes are able to start monetizing on their image and likeness, which is really exciting. And I think that's, that's the value, right? Getting the core of it. And at the, the day, you just have to work in concert with the talent to make sure that they understand the value you're driving and, and we understand the value they're driving and, and making sure we're having a, a really good center place of, of, of meeting of commercial interests. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think a lot of people look at decentralization, right? And this can apply to crypto, finance, sports, whatever you want to look at. It's just the idea that people are, are, are separated or decentralized, right? And I think that people look at that and they say, hey, that's clearly the future. That's going to be extremely important. That is a, a huge concept that everything's going to be built on. But people often forget that centralized entities provide a ton of value. There's a reason why the biggest enterprises in the world are all centralized. They have one CEO, they have one CFO, they have this chain of command that you're able to execute because it provides, as you mentioned, the ability to scale fast and it provides the ability to make decisions quickly or make decisions for an organization. Yeah. And I think that that's important. It's probably, and I would imagine, and I'll leave it up to you to explain, but I imagine that's one of the key benefits that you guys have seen using one single entity versus kind of the traditional model of sports. Yeah. Totally agree. I think there's two two like conversations around this. There's like the conversation around centralization of our assets and it allows us to get scale faster than a traditional league for two reasons. One, on the sponsorship side, which is a huge revenue vertical for us, it allows us to sell all of our assets, all of the IP and work with our players to bring them on as brand ambassadors as well. And so, you know, we don't have to go through league owners or sorry, team owners or even league owners that are like, yeah, there's lots of different layers. You know, we're, we have that sort of mentality of like speed of business and high velocity. And so... And how would that work normally? Each individual team would have a CMO that you would basically have to go through and, and coordinate these deals with? Yeah. If it's a player that a brand wants to come into and it's local, but it's coming through like the league entity, we'd have to go to the league GM and then the league's marketing department. And then you have to go through the players association and then you have to go through the agents. And there's just like multiple layers to get the check to, to check off the list before you can package a deal. Right. And that's why you'll see commercials where there's like, you know, I think I saw a commercial recently uh, for the final four where it was, I forget the brand, but it was, it was basically like there was no IP, no marks on a player and he was playing basketball and it was just like a blank Jersey. And it's just the quality of the commercial didn't seem as premium because they weren't paying for the licensed marks an IP that that player played in, in the NBA, I think it was. And so like you have to be able, so the brand has to be willing to pay for the, the IP marks and then pay the athlete. And so for us, when we go to a, a, a marketer, we say, hey, you just talk to us. We own all the assets. We own all the IP. We work with our players to bring them in. If there's no conflict with their existing sponsorships, we'll fold them into this partnership as long as they agree and you agree it's a right fit. We'll do all the heavy lifting. We'll work with their agent if they have an agent. And then we'll package all the everything together. And it's not multiple different parties that have to buy in. So that's really easy for a, a buyer to do. So that's like a one big piece of the single. The second piece is just speed of decision, like I talked about. There's just like so many small decisions that in a traditional trade association need to get like above a certain threshold of majority vote from the owners. And for us, it's like, hey, we have thresholds internally around like budgets and just any sort of corporate governance any company has. But then it's just the management team and our board of directors. And so if we need to do something, you know, we just go to the board and we say, hey, we need to get this done. Here's why. Here's the case. This is what the players want. Like, for example, we're rolling out new workers comp, which is like incredibly nuanced. And don't, don't want to go down the path, but it's like really, really tough for any pro athlete and the handling of it. The space is broken. It's, it's ripe for disruption. Anyone wants to get in the workers comp space. But we were able to we decided to spend a lot more to go out and 
work with a specialist to bring in workers' comp. We surveyed the players. They, they didn't like our former workers' comp strategy. So we went to our board and said, hey, this is going to be an investment, but it's for the long-term happiness of the players. And our quick decision was made. We were able to move quickly. We have a new workers' comp rollout for the players this year. That's something that in a traditional league would have taken probably months to get done. And we were able to get it done in the moments of like three weeks after like four months of working on it. So like those decisions allow us to be more flexible and enhance the experience of our fans, our players, our partners, our front office. So those are the two big reasons for, for the front office and a single entity structure that, that's centralized to your point. Gotcha. So I want to turn the page for a second here and talk about raising capital. Yep. I know that we mentioned previously, it's not easy to build a sports league. Only crazy people in my mind actually go out to go and try to do this or attempt to build this league. <laughs> what was it like raising capital from investors? Oh man, we probably need a separate podcast for this. I think the tough place about, so I've, I've done startups before, we've, we've raised money for different ideas. I think the tough place about where we were is that, you know, to do the league the way we wanted to do it required a lot of upfront capital very quickly. So typically venture back businesses, you can do like a seed round that's like a couple million bucks. And then you do an A round that's maybe like five to 10 once you have more proof of concepts and paid customers. And then you try to get more customers and show them like, hey, you can get to your B. And that's like progression, right? For us, it was like really small seed round. And like got someone to believe in us, Rain, and a couple other investors. And then we needed to get three things done, which is bring over all the best players, get a network deal. We did so. And then bring on a big anchor sponsor. And we did so. And then at that point, we thought that was enough credibility to go raise like a monster round that would get us through a couple seasons. But that was like skipping in a traditional venture model, like five steps. So we had to go basically from an amount of capital perspective like a seed round to like a C. And so that was like very difficult and took a lot of buy-in. And thankfully we had two like really early investors and then Rain continued to participate. And Joe Ty, he tracked us the whole time. We've met with him, we met with him a ton. He wanted to see that we get things done. And then Brett Jefferson, who is a big hedge fund manager at Hildeen Capital and played lacrosse at Syracuse. Once we made an announcement on Bloomberg and we sort of just went all in, we didn't even have the money raised. We're like, yep, we're doing this. We're doing, we're doing this league. I remember going up to Paul. I said, Paul, we don't even have money in the bank. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. He's like, you just got you just got to do it. And what you thought that people would just follow on, basically? Yeah, we had the seed round. We're trying to raise the A. There were some things going on, and like we just went. We're like, hey, we got to do this announcement. And it was October of 2018, and we hadn't even gotten to that next round of financing. We haven't closed it. We're still negotiating with some people, and so it was definitely putting the cart before the horse. But sometimes you have to put the cart before the horse in the the media business, and you have to be willing to deal with the consequences if you can't get it over the goal line. So it's not purely fake it till you make it. We we're going to find a way to get the capital and start the league. But the capital wasn't secured when we made that announcement. And very few people know that, which was, you know, I was up there, I was like swallowing my tongue because I was just thinking about like, what if we can't launch? And I just went on Bloomberg and, you know, Paul's just relentless and he's like, we'll get it done. And so I, 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 I borrowed a lot of his confidence during that time. That's amazing. And what is the money? What's so expensive about it initially? Is it the actual putting on the events each weekend or is it the players or something else? Yeah. I mean, in our model, right? Single entity, I just talked about why it's so valuable. The downside of it is it's just really expensive, right? We pay for all the players, we pay for their travel, we pay for their lodging, pay for their meals. We have a front office, right? We, we rent stadiums. We invest in a team to go sell sponsorships and tickets, marketing dollars to market the business. So not only are you running a business and you have like your normal cost of any company, but then you have, you know, when you're a software business, you just have your team building the software and the software you just continue to iterate. You know, our software is our players and our broadcast. And so we carry all those costs and then all their other costs as well of, you know, like I said, all the travel and lodging and food. So if you look at the total cost basis of our business, it's, it's, it's really, really expensive. We think in the long run, it's the best business model to scale, but out of the gate, we just needed a ton of capital to get through the first couple of seasons. And so a lot of it was convincing. It's like, hey, look at all the things we did really quickly. This is why you should put faith in us to execute. And then once we got our first season done, it went well. And then people were like, oh, okay. Like, you know, Joe wouldn't mind me telling the story, but Joe originally, when he first invested, he he put a proxy on the board and he was like, look, let's see if these guys can do it. I'll, I'll you know, co-invest with Brett and and rain. And then, you know, we got to the season, had our first board meeting in New York. He came to that board meeting with his proxy and was like, wow, you guys are taking this really seriously. This isn't just like, you're doing this to beat your chest. Like this is like, you're trying to build a really big business. And then we got a call after the, our board meeting from his proxy. 
And he was like, hey, Joe wants to join the board and take my seat. And we were like, hell yeah. And so we've been in the foxhole with him ever since. And Joe is, for people that don't know, for context, he's the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. He also has a big lacrosse background too, right? Yep. He played at Yale, co-founder of Alibaba. Him and Jack you know, co-founded that business, built it. He played lacrosse at Yale and is a big supporter of Yale lacrosse. He also owns WNBA, New York Liberty. He's a big investor and supporter of just sports in general. When he wants to get behind something... And he's very analytical, but once he gets beside, behind somebody, he puts both of his shoulders into it and he's a great partner to have, but he makes you earn his trust like any good investor should. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's amazing to have someone like that in the foxhole with you, right? When you think about Alibaba's pretty big business, but also the Brooklyn Nets and, and so forth are very successful too. So very cool. All right. Let's talk about ESPN though. You guys just announced a deal, four-year exclusive deal with ESPN where all of your guys' games, all 47 PLL games will be on their network, ESPN, ESPN+, Plus, ABC, ESPN2. What does this mean for the league? Yeah. I will say first, before I go in and, and, and put on the, the ESPN hype machine hat, because we are really excited about it, NBC gave us our first shot and there's some people over there that took a big bet on us. We won't ever forget that. And, you know, even though we changed networks and we created something really special with them, you know, it's important to acknowledge the risk that they took and bet they took on us. And I wouldn't even be on this podcast with you if it wasn't for those people over there at NBC Sports. How did you convince NBC at first to do it? At first, we were met with Comcast Ventures. You know, Comcast owns NBC. And, and so they were looking maybe to invest. And they were like, wait, well, if we're going to invest, we should try to like own the broadcast. And so they brought us into 30 Rock. And we went up and met with John Miller and Mike Perman and some other programming folks. And it was Paul and myself and a guy who was working with us who's, who's now at Endeavor. But the three of us rolled out a deck and just said, here are our plans. And for some reason, they believed in us and a lot of other networks didn't. And they put together the best deal and the best package for us. And they also have a track record of, of taking some risk and like building really high quality sports products. You know, I think that their, their Sunday Night Football is an incredible product. What they do with Notre Dame football is amazing. And so they just, I don't know, man, they, they just wanted to, to believe in something. And I think we went in there and, and told them that we were just going to work ourselves down to the to the nub and, and to believe in us. And so they rolled the dice and it was risky. And I think that after the first year, they were they were very, very excited because it was profitable for them out of the out of the gate, right? Because after the season, because it was a rev share, so any dollars we brought in were 50-50. And then any NBC gold pass at the time was a rev split. And we outkicked our coverage there from an expectation. So it was like a profitable return for them. And they were like got really excited about it. And then, you know, we managed our way in a really opportunistic way through COVID. We took advantage of some vacated Olympic windows. 2021, we continued to increase viewership and OTT subscriptions. And we moved over to Peacock and we're sort of an early adopter and driver of Peacock subscriptions. End of the day, you know, our, our term was up and, and, you know, we were trying to optimize for the best economic package for the league. And then also was going to do who was going to put together the best marketing package. And it was a hard decision, but ESPN really put together a package that we couldn't say no to. And then if you look at the track record of ESPN, what they're able to do with properties, I mean, I could attribute a lot of value back to ESPN, to the MLS's growth when they did that second rights deal. You know, ESPN is one of the best marketers in sports. They've invested in, in digital out of the gate from a long time ago with their ESPN app. They made a huge investment five years ago and continue to on social. They have one of the biggest social followings across all social platforms and then ESPN and uh, SportsCenter. They have a 24-hour news desk with SportsCenter and all the different shoulder programming they have. And so they just have this amazing flywheel of marketing that once you become part of that family, yeah, there's a lot of people in that family, but they start just pushing out content and promoting your business like no one else. And to me, that's what's really exciting is that they just have so many assets to to market us. It's going to make us hopefully capture a lot of those net new sports fans is a big part of our business model. Well, even, I mean, it's a big business today, but look at what happened to the UFC. The UFC has grown tremendously on ESPN's totally. platforms, right? I mean, it's a it's a slightly different model, but it's it's grown a lot since they took it over a few years ago. A hundred percent. That's even a better example of what the, just the since the switchover, was it Fox over to, to ESPN? Look at the UFC's growth since then. They just get behind their, their properties in a big way and they they're on the channel marketing business on top of being a broadcast network, which I think is really smart. Yeah. So I want to talk about how big this business can be. So I think last year you guys had about 350 or 325,000 people watch the championship game on NBC. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, but one, I want to talk about like 
that's pretty significant for a league that's only a few years old. Yeah. Formula One, for example, on, in the U.S. was averaging like 650 or 700 last year, right? So this sport's been around for, for much less time than that one has, and I think that's pretty impressive. But if we were to look 10 or 15 years down the road, like how many people are watching each game? How big of a, of a revenue business do you think this can be? Just talk me through kind of your growth projections. Yeah. For the championship game on NBC, I think it was 333, which was, if you compared, you know, 2020, I don't think it was a fair comparison, but that was 22% over 2019. Right. And so, you know, look, it's, it's a good number. Our, our most ever watch, I think was 420. It was our first season. It's the first game I ever had on NBC. I think that our business is an exciting one because there's a lot of untapped commercial growth. There is a, uh, a premium put on who our audience is right now. We want to diversify our audience, but our audience, you know, it's college aged, it's high net worth. It's, they have a large share uh, and spend of, of, of their wallets. So there's advertisers really like this space. So I still think there's a lot of revenue unlocked, particularly on the sponsorship side, you know, since 2019, our live minute streamed has been up 300%. We have, we grew our, our total revenue 56% last year. We really think about our business in the next 10 years. We want to be, you know, doing $100 million plus revenue business. And we have a pretty clear path, if not sooner than do that's pretty conservative. But we want to make sure that as we grow, it's sustainable growth. We're making sure, you know, one of the greatest things about driving more revenue is the more revenue we drive, the more money players make. And to me, we want our players to be making a million dollars in the next five years. A top player at least make a million dollars. That moves the needle. You know, if all of a sudden our players are, are wealthy, all of a sudden, the kids, more kids are participating than ever before. They are striving to go play professional lacrosse. The conversation changes pretty quick. We have a good amount of players that are making well over six figures in our league. And we continue to reinvest and invest in weight player wages every single year. But the more our commercial business grows, not only does it allow the business and, and shareholders to, to have more value that they hold, but also really allows the, the, the players, like I said, to make more money, which into the, the day is good for them. And it's good for the sport. And it's just going to drive more participation, more conversation, more viewership. Viewership's always the, the the key metric. But I think one of the cool things about our business is that because our audience is so young, it skews digitally native. So they're already used to watching things digitally. And so in a world where there's a, a premium associated to people that are watching content on OTT platforms, we're in a really good place. Every single year, we've driven triple digit growth in that category from a subscription basis and then from a minute stream basis. And so moving over to E+, which is one of the original sports platforms, I mean, the E+, team has been doing it for five years. They're not a couple of years in. And so they've been working out the kinks. There's people on there. UFC's on there. There's a lot of big leagues that have content on there. So there's more people. I think they are like around 20 million subs already, something like that, just for E+. So we're excited to be part of that. I think that the user experience is really clean, which is important because our, our audience is so digitally native. And so that's not... Our, that's not our own and operate technology, but to partner with someone who has good technology and a good UI UX is important for us because we think about like us being fans. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to continue to drive people and you know, all the games are, will be exclusive on E plus in addition to the ones that are on ABC, ESPN, ESPN two, and then, but they'll have replay availability and people you know, really dive in and watch those things from a, just a, watching the best players in the world from an instructional perspective. I'm excited about that place. And then the more viewership you drive, the more subscriptions you drive for your, your core media partner, then there's an unlock just across sponsorships, across tickets, across merchandise, you know, across you know, your youth business. And then, and then I think the Web3 space is like a really interesting place to be right now as the IP holder of the league and working in, in partnership with your players I still think there's a little bit of sort of the dust settling and figuring out how you really get into that space. I mean, you know far more about it than I do. But uh, we've been really, we launched NFTs. You helped us make that announcement a, a year ago. And that was like one of the first ever utility-based NFTs. And now you can't even launch NFTs without utility, right? It's just like a dead, it's a board ape collection, right? So for us, we think that there's even more revenue streams potentially that gets us up to that number that I talked about. But yeah, you know, that's essentially how we think about the revenue breakdown. Gotcha. And what does the business look like from a profitability standpoint if you guys do reach the 100 million plus in revenue? Yeah, I mean, there's always the push pull, right? Do we want to continue to invest in growth? I mean, we could be profitable probably today if we wanted to based on like sort of our growth projections and where we think our numbers are going to sort out. But we're reinvesting. We're investing in more people to drive top line revenue. We're investing in the player experience. We're investing in the fan experience, you know, there's always those weird moments where you can like become profitable and like squeeze everything out and make it match perfectly. Like we're profitable, but it's like, is that the right thing for the growth of the business? 
And it's the same conversation you have with public market companies that are, aren't profitable, right? So for us, it's that fine line around, okay, what are the two or three things we need to make sure we're checking off as we grow revenues? It's like making sure we have adequate front office staff to continue to grow the business and service the business and think about the fans. And then making sure that player wages are continuing to rise as revenue grows with certainty. And then everything else is like kind of like a conversation with your board. Where do you fix everything else? And like, what things can we cut back and get tighter on? What things we need to add? And is it driving that enterprise value that we want? So at that number, we would be very, very profitable. But there's probably, you know, uh, there's a lot of other costs at scale to get there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's different between what you guys are doing and what some of these sports betting companies are doing, spending, you know, $1,000, $2,000 to acquire a customer, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And at some point, investors are like, hey, like, let's prove that this business can be profitable. And then we can get back to to scaling as quick as we can. I'll tell you how one of these sports betting companies can be profitable. I've been saying this, but like, uh, it's like bet and watch like exclusive bet and watch and like getting into the content ownership business. Like that's just, what they just need to do. There's just too much competition around customer acquisitions, your point. And if they start owning media rights or owning sports leagues in general, it's like what AVP did with Bally's. Bally's owns AVP. They're working on bet and watch. The only place to watch AVP moving forward is in a Bally's experience. And you can do live betting and bet and watch. There's like all of a sudden this moat around Bally's if you're a hardcore volleyball consumer, right? And I think that with integrity services and integrity businesses and third-party lines makers, I think some of these large direct-to-consumer brands need to start thinking about ownership and the media rights business and being like, we got to start creating a deeper moat, not just chasing CAC. The thing I would say off of that, and I'm curious your opinion as someone who operates one of these sports leagues, but like I'll use my name just for example, so I don't use a sports betting company, but say PLL does a deal with, with Pomp Sports Betting, right? And anyone I sign up has the ability to bet and watch a PLL game, but they can't access PLL games anywhere else. You can't go watch it at A, B, or C sports betting company. You can't watch it on this network. You can't watch it on cable or anywhere else. How does that look for you guys? Are you guys worried about the fragmentation or are we already kind of in that world already with all the different OTT platforms? We're in that world already, man. I think Fanatics is going to get in that business one day. They're already starting to edge around. You, you, you know, there's, yeah. there's rumors around them getting into the sports betting space. You know, They're going to start looking down the funnel and being like, okay, how do we get more deeper into the media space? Now, I don't know anyone that's from there that said that, but like, that's the likely next step. So I start to think about if I'm one of these sports betting operators and and this is just my humble prediction. I started thinking about how do I drive defensibility? And the space is already starting to get fragmented. You're seeing Amazon in the space, you're seeing Apple in the space with MLB. I don't know, Netflix could get in the space, but you're seeing two of the big three digital streamers. And then you have all the other broadcast companies. Let's just talk about like ownership. Like Fox owns USFL, they're putting $250 million behind it, and they're doing it in a partnership with NBC. There's already broadcast companies who are in the ownership business. So, like for me, I think about like, you know, I have to be thinking about this stuff to drive shareholder value. So like maybe I'm putting it out there for my own benefit, but I, but I don't think it's just necessarily for our own benefit. I mean, you're seeing these like really good businesses that are sports betting companies get hurt in the capital markets and, and because they're all just competing for, for downloads and who's betting on, on percentage of handle. And they need to start thinking about how do we create more defensibility? And that's going to require a deeper investment. But the first board to get, I mean, FUBU TV has its own book. I mean, it's already happening. So, you know, I think that some of these ones, the first one to be most agile and say, hey, we're going to go acquire rights. How is it for the consumer experience? I don't know. But I do think that it's the right position to play if I'm one of these sports betting businesses. Yeah, I've long thought, and this has become very commonplace to some degree, but I still think it's kind of thought as, as maybe not possible, but I think fanatics has an opportunity to really own the entire experience. I think they, they have the ability from a consumer standpoint, a consumer facing standpoint to own everything from commerce to sports betting to collectibles, physical and digital, right? I think they're going to get involved in gaming. Gaming is an industry that the infrastructure is totally destroyed. It's, it's so fragmented and just terrible. And I think that fanatics has the opportunity to get involved there and build a big business. And then I think about streaming, right? Like, if you're one of these these players, to your point, that has all those other assets, like why wouldn't you just own the most valuable asset or have exclusive access to the most valuable asset? Yeah. We're seeing everyone attack content from like premium, like F1 Drive Just Rock, perfect example. But like, why doesn't Netflix just own the streaming rights to F1? It's a global series, right? So it benefits their entire or just, platform. Or just own the entire, yeah. own the whole business, yeah. right? And they own all the revenue streams. 
Yeah, you could have bought that business for like, I think it was four or $5 billion, Liberty Media invested. I mean, the, the enterprise value is different because of the debt and stuff, but I think they invested like four or $5 billion. And if you look at Netflix today, would they have been able to do what Liberty Media did? Maybe not, but ultimately it would have been a massive, massive business when you combine that with their production of Drive to Survive 2. Totally. I mean, Netflix is driving so much enterprise value back to Liberty Media. And my guess is that Netflix is going to start thinking about, okay, how do we start owning more of that? Whether it's streaming, whether it's ownership, whether what it is, you know, their sports thesis will probably start to evolve because they've seen the success of that. Well, we've seen Amazon and Apple and obviously, you know, those others are getting involved now. But the funniest part about the whole thing is that Netflix pays Liberty Media, right? (laughs) They they pay them to be on the platform when in reality, they're driving 10x more value back to Liberty Media through the distribution that they've given them. Totally. 100%. So I want to end with a little bit of entrepreneurship talk. I know that everyone has advice these days, but I think that you and your brother, Paul, are incredible entrepreneurs. I think you guys are doing a great job. I think you guys are taking, I know that you guys are, are attacking something that is super ambitious and you're, you're trying to fix a hard problem, right? You're trying to build the next major professional sports league here in the US. So I want to talk a little bit about just kind of how you think about building this business. You're the CEO. So the CEO, as everyone knows, is is obviously focused on the long-term vision of the business, but has to prioritize short-term goals. How do you think about balancing those two things as CEO? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 probably the hardest part of of being a uh, an entrepreneur, right? It's like trying to balance your short-term fires to put out on a day-to-day basis with the long-term goals of, of what's best for the company. And the end of the day, the way I think about it is like, I try to boil it down to something really simple. And it's really around like resource allocation. And I don't think it depends if you're a startup or, or a large company, right? I try to study great entrepreneurs, I try to study great CEOs, I try to great, study great executives. And end of the day, like you have a couple bets and you have a couple decisions. And Jim Collins talks about this in his book, Good to Great. And we're reading that at the, the PLO book club right now. But none of this stuff is like, there's a lot of luck involved, a lot of timing, what happens with the market. Like that's first and foremost. So like me even be on this podcast and talk at the PLL, a lot of things had to work out in our favor that were like far beyond Paul or my control. That's like one. So like what happens in the market is completely off the table. That's just going to happen, whether it dictates our success or not. So like I think about what's in my control and that's really resource allocation of the available resources we have. Where can we invest them that are going to drive the most impact back to the company? And then how does that impact build our, our enterprise value? So like our business really is a step function business. Every four or five years, there's like a big moment that happens, whether it's like big media rights deals, sometimes there's big sponsorship deals, but all the other revenue verticals to kind of grow year over year and like a pretty appreciated, hopefully pace. But like all these, all of a sudden, if we do really well for three years, our media rights deal jumps, or if we do really well, some of our sponsorships double, right? And so what are the things that go into those step function times? They're going to drive a lot of value. And the way we think about it is, Content creation and storytelling in a, in a way that's telling the story of lacrosse and our players. We think about it as like driving more programming and having like interesting assets that we can like sell. So like, you know, maybe there's like out of season things or more events or expanding our schedule or deepening our schedule. Those are things that are going to drive more value back to the business from a tonnage perspective, from an asset driving perspective. And then the third piece really is like, what sort of partnerships can we build that are authentically telling the story of sports, whether it's through an influencer or another company that is somehow involved in lacrosse, right? And so one of our best collabs we've done was with Method Man. People don't realize that Method Man loves lacrosse and he played growing up. And that took a, a lot of hard work to get in touch with him because of his status. And then once he, we got in touch with him, you know, he's now a shareholder in the PLL and you know, jumped in our broadcast. But doing partnerships like that that tell the story that, that are enlightening the consumer on like why lacrosse and the PLR are exciting. And there's an authentic tie-in start to move our business into a deeper place of culture. At the end of the day, we're in the attention gathering business at its fundamental level. And so where are the places that we can drive resources that will bring us closer to culture in an authentic way? And that's how we try to think about it, right? And, and also the last thing I'd say is none of the things that we do and we try are that proprietary. So when we do things, we have our mission. It's to trailblaze the future of professional sports that's player and fan focused. And today, when we do something that works, everyone else comes and does it. So what's the next thing that we need to do? And as long as we're being thoughtful and, and gathering as much data as we can, 
we're going to take those bets. And if they don't work, it's all good. And if they work, then great. Yeah. It's funny because you can tell as a consumer, I think I texted you when you guys made the ESPN announcement. I was like, dude, that video was better than anything I've ever seen a major sports league do. And just simple shit like that. You know what I mean? From a content perspective of hype videos. I know you guys interview players after goals on the field, like stuff like that is really cool. And I think that you're exactly right of like, this is stuff that we're going to see other leagues doing shortly, but how can you find the next thing and the next thing and the next thing before other people continue to catch on? I mean, a big piece of it, man, is, is just you know making sure you have great people in the front office. Like I take zero credit for that. It's our marketing team specifically. It was an amazing editor, producer that we have. His name is Nick Bailey. He built that with one arm tied behind his back and a million other things he had going on. And honestly, it's like really focusing on hiring great people and then retaining them and listening to them and like areas we need to get better at. But at the end of the day, people build businesses, not like the CEO or the co-founders. And we can make strategic shifts and like try to deploy capital in areas that we think make sense are going to drive a lot of value back. But like we have to make sure we're starting to get in the business of you're retaining our best people and hiring great people. And that's just going to separate us at a fundamental level. I believe that. And that's kind of how we try to build our business. How many employees do you guys have now? We have like 67, not that many. We're going to probably be up to 80 before the season starts. But, you know, we, we, we try to run a, a lean business, not in a way that's going to burn people out. But I do think that sports is hard. People are like, oh, I want to, I, mean, I get these, all these DMs, like, how do I work in sports? I'm like, first of all, ask yourself if you're ready to work in sports. What that means is your weekends during the season are completely gone. You don't have weekends. Are you okay with that? And the second piece is like, for us is do you want to have like some measurable impact on a sport and on the sports industry? And every single person in our company has like complete end-to-end ownership of what they do and sometimes more. And so Nick, who built that video edit that you talked about, you know, ESPN loved it and they were running it on their TV, a college TV programming that weekend. And, you know, Nick had complete creative control. He built the whole thing. It gets approved by the coordinated producer and it's out the window and it goes out. Right. And so at the end of the day, I think that that is a lot of value back. At least what I think about my first job when I worked at a big company, I just felt like I was a, you know sitting there in a small cube. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think if people want to have impact outside of just their day-to-day, they come and work at the PLO. And how important is that trust? It sounds like like you give people roles and responsibilities and then you trust them to go do their job and then they you know report back with any issues or problems that they may face. How important is that trust in, in the roles that you're hiring for? It's incredibly important. I think that the way that a, a business like ours or, or startups or earlier stage businesses get a lot of scale is they get they bring in people who want to be autonomous. They want to wear a couple different hats. Now, as you start to get bigger, you start to like narrow your focus. But at the end of the day, a sports league, there's so much to do. There's so many different verticals that you can specialize in and so many things to get accomplished during the season, before the season, after the season, that there's just like endless amounts of work. And so we want people that are excited about that, that don't want to be told what to do every single day, that don't want to be micromanaged. We have a management philosophy at the PLO. A lot of it's around like one-to-one feedback, one-to-one meetings, structured one-on-ones, getting better, particularly when you're getting that feedback and being open to feedback and proportionate feedback as a gift. But end of the day, our people are driving our business and, you know, do we mess up? Do we not get it right? Sure. But we want to make sure that our most talented people are feeling validated, are feeling like they're having impact and have creative control. And we just want to get out of the way and let them create and go do their thing to the best of our ability, because we know at the leadership level, we know what we're good at. We know a lot of things we're not good at. We need to find the people that are good at the things that we're not good at. The best entrepreneurs in my mind are able to take on risk and deal with it in an extremely good capacity. Is that something that you've always been good at or did you have to teach yourself to be to be okay with risk? Oh, man, I think uh, that's a good question. Yeah, like high risk tolerance. I think Paul and I have a a fairly high pain tolerance. But if it wasn't for us being brothers, I'm sure you could see with your brothers and be able to like have that conversation like, yo, I'm not doing well, or I have fatigue around this. And, you know, I know when he has fatigue and I get in there and try to lift him up and he can tell when I have fatigue and he gets in there and lifts me up. I think at the end of the day, being an athlete, being a college athlete and Paul being, you know, an amazing pro athlete, there's a, a level of pain tolerance you start to develop that translates into the business setting. And at a fundamental level, I just think about it like this. I'm just like, look, end of the day, is this, is this more painful than and going and working at you know, a big company? Yeah. Is there more work that never stops? Yes. Do I miss a lot of weekends? Of course. But at the end of the day, I feel alive when I'm working and I get to select and work with people I care about that you don't get at big companies. And the bigger we get, we have less control. But like, I can literally look around at every single person in my business right now and say, I enjoy working with this person it makes the waking hours of work a little bit better. And to me, that's one of the most important parts about entrepreneurship. 
And I just try to focus on let's build a really sustainable business. Let's build a really great business. Let's just like, we have a value that's called persevere through the noise. The noise can be a lot of things. It can be pain. It can be no's. It can be people on social media bashing you. But as long as we persevere together and we build a sustainable business, we're going to come out the other end and we're going to be a value to someone, to our fans and to our players. Yeah. I think about the pressure component a lot because in some businesses, right, you're not very public facing. There is no real pressure. Maybe you have internal pressure on yourself to succeed or build this business and not give up. But ultimately in a business like this, I think it could be helpful to some degree because not only do you have employees that you're accountable for, but there's public pressure, right? You guys are large within the lacrosse community. It is a massive sport at this point. Like people are looking at this league to lead the way. So there's pressure to succeed from the aspect of like, Hey, let's get this right and build this league the right way. And I think that that can be extremely helpful if used in the right way. Totally. If you channel it in the right way, it could also be incredibly unhealthy because then you start thinking about the gravity of letting people down, right? It's like letting your employees down, letting your players down, letting your investors down, letting your fans down, letting the, the public media down, letting your partners down. In our business, we have six constituents. Most have three. And so there's a lot of people, if you don't do well, that you let down. And I think about that a lot, right? But at the end of the day, I try to, to practice some stoicism. Like Ryan Holiday, he's an investor in the PLL. And he talks about Marcus Aurelius and you know him telling himself, are you going to die from this event? And, and a lot of times there'll be like a really stressful call or a meeting that happens. And then I just try to take it in perspective. That's one of the reasons why our business is Southern California, because it's so beautiful that like we need to go outside a lot and breathe the air and say, hey, I'm not going to die from this. It's going to be okay. Let's go back in and keep trying. Yeah, I love that. When you guys hire, do you look more at the philosophy of someone who's willing to do the dirty work and someone who's willing to build a bigger mission, right? Build the sports league, or are you still focused mostly on technical skills and their ability to do the actual job? Depends on the role. So we have a saying here at the PLL, you come to the PLL, you're going to be building traffic lights. You're not going to be directing traffic. And then once you build those traffic lights, you start to get scale, but you're the one building it. You're not directing the traffic. So no matter the role, but then based on the role we're hiring for, we really try to make sure if it's a leadership position with a big team or if it's a, you know, a manager, analyst, manager, director, VP level, what is their day-to-day going to look like? Does it really going to acquire people management? I think everyone wants to be a people manager and they have to manage people. That's one. Are they okay with it? Do they have experience in it? What are the technical skills they need to have to, to complete that role? And then do they have those involatile traits that we need at the PLL, like hardworking, high integrity, passion for sport, passion for entrepreneurship. But one of the things that we use a lot in hiring practice, particularly is each hire we make, we always say each hire we make, net new person is impacting our culture, is a case study and super days. And so we'll have a super day where someone comes in or they do something remotely, they present a case study to us. So you can see their work product, you can see their passion, you can see their presentation skills, and they're in front of a group, they're in front of their peers who are going to be working with them. That allows us to get good decisions rather than just solely relying on the hiring process. Case studies are such a big part of what we do because you can tell if someone is invested in that work product they're putting in front of you. And it's been really helpful. I love it, man. This was an awesome episode. I appreciate you coming on. I know you're obviously very busy and could be doing a million different things. So I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of what you and your brother and your team are building. I wish you guys nothing but the best. And I know you have some exciting news that you're working on. So hopefully we'll have you back in a few months and we can discuss that more. I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for having me on, man. Let's get back together in a month. There's going to be some like interesting things that are popping up that we've been working on for a long time. Would love to uh, break the news with you in some capacity and let's get the better looking, smarter, more articulate Rabel brother on your show again. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, man. All right, brother. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.